All right, so this morning um, we're going to talk about the issue of church membership. Now, if you were here last week or you listened in last week, you know that I'm sort of flipping the script a little bit uh, on us. I had said initially what I wanted to do was deal with the historical context of who we are as Baptists, which I did in, in very light fashion. Like I didn't get very deep into that, but I wanted to give you a sort of a framework to understand what is a Baptist and where do we come from. And then what I said I was going to do was walk through what our, our core doctrinal beliefs are as a church and then end with the issue of church membership and why church membership is important. But then as I was sort of thinking about that this week, I thought, you know, I feel like we need to get church membership and why it's important right at the front uh, and then we'll deal with our doctrinal issues sort of at, at, at the end of the study or, or the bulk of the study will be that. But I thought I don't want to neglect this until all the way at the end. So I want to talk to you about why uh, church membership is important. And I'm hoping that um, I know some of you who are here are not members of the church. Some of you are members of the church. I'm hoping this will be equally important for everyone here and that uh, we'll we'll understand the importance of it. And unfortunately, I think the issue of church membership has become an issue that's not so important anymore, especially in modern American, sort of America's flavor of Christianity. I know for me, and some of you probably had the same experience, that you grew up as a member of a church, you got baptized, you came to faith early in life, you joined the church, because that's what you were told to do, or your parents sort of ushered you into that, or the pastor or whomever, you joined the church. And then for me, for instance, I I spent most of my life in my dad's churches. So when we would move to a new place, we would, the first week we were there, we would join the new church, and they would move our letter from one church to the next. And then when Denise and I moved to North Carolina, the first thing that we did was we went and found a new church and joined a church. We just thought that was the appropriate thing to do. And, uh, and that's sort of been my experience in life, is that I was just taught that. I don't know that I ever really understood why. I just knew that you should be a member of a church. And now I think that that is, is changing in, in a big way for us. And I think that coming out of the, on the heels of the seeker-sensitive movement that the American church went through over the past 20 or 30 years, there's been sort of a devaluing of church membership um, a lot of churches don't even require that you become a member anymore or ask you uh, to become a member anymore. Some churches have done away with it altogether. There's no membership. You're just sort of there as a, as a believer in Christ. And so our church culture is changing a little bit. And then also there's just cultural things that are at hand here. Like, uh, for instance, with younger people in particular, people under the age of 40, they don't like to be identified or labeled. And so joining the church... It becomes a label, and they don't want to do that. They want to just sort of maintain their autonomy and their freedom. And, and so joining a church has become something that's not necessarily very important to a lot of people. I think it's very important, and uh, I'm hoping that we can demonstrate that and why it's important. I do want to mention, um, because this is important for later on in the discussion, that there are basically three ways when we're talking about our church or any Baptist church, for that matter, there are basically three ways that you can become a member of a Baptist church. Uh, Anybody know what those ways are? All right, so something precedes that, right? So the the first way is profession of faith and baptism. And so that would be somebody who has never made a profession of faith, whether they're 10 years old or 
70 years old or anywhere in between, somebody who's never made a profession of faith, and so they come to the pastor and say, you know, I believe in Jesus, I've made a decision to follow Jesus, and I want to be baptized. And so uh, baptism being the public confession of the inward decision that we've made, the inward change, so a person professes Christ, and then they're baptized publicly by immersion, and then that's the first way that you would join a Baptist church. The second way would be uh, sort of. The second way would be, that's the third way. The second way would be that you would come by profession of faith having already been baptized, like Larry and Renee is a good inst- uh, example of that, that you guys had already previously been baptized, made professions of faith, but you came and joined our church by profession of faith having already done that, having already been baptized by immersion before, and so we allowed you to join the church. And then the third way is by transfer of letter. And that's something that's rarely done anymore. I can tell you that even when we try to do it now, most churches don't respond back to us. And essentially what would happen is that we would, you would come to us from another Baptist church and they would hold your membership or your letter of membership and then we would request your letter of membership just to move to our church. We would send them a letter, they would send us a letter and you would be a member of the church. Most churches don't respond to those letters anymore. I'm not really sure why, but um, we, we rarely get a response if we ask for a letter of membership. So, but those are the three basic ways. And it's important to understand that, that all of those at their core carry the idea that every member of a Baptist church is a regenerate believer of Jesus Christ. They're, they're regenerate. They've come to faith. They've owned their faith on their own. They've made a confession of faith, and they're following Jesus Christ, and there's some evidence the church is, they're either affirming it publicly before the church, or they're saying that the church has already affirmed that in their baptism from wherever they came from. But every member of a Baptist church is meant to be a baptized, confessing believer of Jesus Christ. That's at the core of church membership in a Baptist church. Nobody becomes a member who isn't a believer in Jesus Christ. And so, That's why we don't automatically make our children members. When we have baby dedications, we don't dedicate our babies and then welcome them into the membership of the church because they might grow up. Uh, We hate to think this, but they might grow up to be the most unregenerate, wild thing you've ever known. And then what would we do if they were a member of our church already? How would we handle that? So we try to guard the regenerate church membership. That's an important part of being a Baptist. Now, the, the big question, I think, when it comes to this idea of church membership is, is it biblical? Can I find church membership in the Bible, or is this just something that we made up uh, in the church as we've sort of walked through church history? We kind of came up with this thing on our own. I think the answer to the question, is church membership biblical, is yes. And I think that you, you would be right to say that you can't find the words church membership in the New Testament. You can't find them anywhere in the Bible. But I do believe that church membership is in the Bible, and I think that we can demonstrate that and sort of walk through some passages of Scripture. And these are important to us, and I want you guys uh, to really kind of stay with me here towards the end, because we're going to get to something that's super, super practical for every person in this room. Maybe some of these things you think are, are more academic than others, but in the end, we're going to get to some things that are really Practical. So hold on, to, hold on with me. So there's basically four words that will help us to understand the idea of where we get this idea of church membership in the New Testament. And the first word is organized. That the church 
in the New Testament was organized. You know, we have this idea, I think we have this growing idea in, in uh, the 21st century that church could be a little looser, you know, that we could just kind of go from place to place or we don't need to be counted, we don't need to be uh, on a list, we don't need to be on a roster, you can just sort of gather wherever you want to gather and it doesn't need to be that organized. But the church in the New Testament was absolutely organized. And just to give you a couple of examples, I mean, we can think in the book of Acts when the church first appears in Acts chapter 2, it appears and we start hearing about numbers of the church. How many people were added to the church daily? And they give us specific numbers. They were, they were keeping track of who was part of the church. And then when we get to Acts chapter 6, we see the example of uh, the, the apostles are ministering to the church in Jerusalem. And they have this one group of uh, Hebrews, he, Hebrew widows against the Greek widows. And, and the Greek widows are being neglected. From the Hebrew widows aren't, and so they begin to organize people to care for the specific needs of the church. That's where we get our deacon ministry from. That's where we get the idea of deacon ministry is from that passage. But the idea is that they understood that there were certain people who were part of the church. They organized themselves as a church. They were keeping track, and they were ministering in specific ways to people in the church. So the church was organized, and there's other places that we can see that all throughout the New Testament. And we'll sort of build on that. When we get to the next word, which is gathered. And I always spell things wrong up there, so y'all shout at me if I, I think I spelled that right. But let me give you some passages of Scripture. Romans chapter 16. Um, Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. And just listen to the language here. Where Paul is closing the book of Romans, this letter to the Romans, and he says, I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in uh, Centria, I can't ever say that word, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and a sister in whatever her business may be. For indeed, she's been a helper of many and myself also. And then he, he's going on, he's greeting people, and he says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. And he begins to talk specifically about them, and then he says, and likewise, greet the church that is in their house. And that's that specific group. And so you begin to hear this language about not just this loose idea of church, but that there must have been, according to the way that Paul addresses people, there must have been specific gatherings of churches. There's not just a church or, or, or the church just sort of loosely in Howard County. There are specific gatherings of churches. And you say, well, do we find that in the Bible? Yeah, you find it all over the New Testament. The churches gathered in specific places, and they seem to know, like Paul here, he's talking about specific individuals who are part of specific congregations. He says, greet these people in the church that's in their house, and likewise the churches of all the Gentiles and these things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 in 18, when Paul's talking to the church at Corinth about the problems they had with the Lord's Supper, he says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. And then he says in verse 18, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So again, he's talking to them in a way that suggests that they're gathering specifically as a congregation. They're gathered together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, again, Paul's dealing with uh, instructions about public corporate worship. 
And he says, how is it then, chapter 14, verse 26, he says, how is it then, brethren, that whenever you come together, so again, this idea of them coming together, and he says, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. And so he's talking to the church about the different things that are going on there, but he prefaces that by saying that these things happen when? When you gather, when you gather together, that the church gathers together. And in verse 33 of chapter 14, Paul says, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And then he closes that statement by saying, as in all the churches of the saints. So not just in your church, but he says it's the same in all the churches, all these different gatherings. So the church is gathered. And so the church is organized and it's gathered. And that's leading us to this one, these last two, which we'll spend more time on. In fact, if you have your Bibles and you want to get ready to follow along, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so, this, this is where it starts to get really practical for how we understand or why we understand that it's important for people to join a church or to actually covenant. And when we say that we're joining a church, by the way, this isn't like, you know, joining the Lions Club or the Moose Lodge. I mean, this is a, a covenant relationship where you come together in the church and you covenant with the church, uh, where you say that we believe certain things, we're covenanting together for a mission uh, around certain beliefs and for accountability and discipline, which we'll get to here. We learn that the church in the New Testament is disciplined. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want to read through it, just sort of set the stage here and, and understand what's going on here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul's writing, and I've mentioned this a couple of times on Sunday morning because I'm preaching through 1 Corinthians, that there was this issue in the church, and we'll get to it eventually on Sunday morning more in depth. But he says it's actually reported that there is sexually or sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. And then he says, he, he tells us what it is. He says that a man has his father's wife. And we all understand what that means. We're all adults in the room. I don't need to go any further than that, right? You understand what's going on here, that this is sexual immorality that's so egregious. He says it's not even named among the Gentiles, but it's going on in the church. And he says that a man has his father's wife. Now, it wasn't his mother. Apparently, it was his stepmother, his father's wife. But you get the idea of what's going on. And in verse 2, and he says, And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So what's he saying there to them? First of all, you've welcomed this man, and you're, you're, you're almost sort of celebrating this idea. And a lot of churches do this, especially nowadays, to celebrate the idea that, you know, we just want to love people. We just want to no matter what's going on in your life, we just want to love you, and we're not going to judge each other. We're not going to go down that road. We're not going to do any of that stuff, but we're just going to love each other. And they're puffed up. They're not mourning over the sin, but he says that you should have so that what could happen to the man? There in verse 2. What's he say at the end? That he might be taken away or put out of the fellowship. In verse 3, For I indeed, as absent in the body but present in the Spirit, have already judged... As though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord, now he gives specific instructions. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together. So now he's calling the church body gathered together. Do this when you're gathered together. And notice as well, we talked about 
last week that the Baptist Church, uh, one of the things that identifies us is congregational government, right? You remember that? That the idea that it's not just elders who rule the church, it's the congregation itself who's responsible for the issues of discipline and ordinances and other things. So here he says, when the church is gathered together, he's writing the whole church, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, put this man out of the fellowship for the sake of discipline. And he goes on to talk about the leaven that ruins the the whole lump and all these things and sin in the church. He's saying, remove such a man from the fellowship. Now, skip down to verse 9. Which says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. He said, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. Now stop right there because he starts now to, to make a division, doesn't he? Like he says, there are people who are in the world. And we would just say, another way we can understand that is outside the church. So he says, I, I did not mean, verse 10, yeah, I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or with extortioners, or idolaters. And so he's saying now, all these things I've written to you about that, that trouble the church and that destroy the fellowship of the church, he said, I'm not telling you to break fellowship with people in the world who are sinners. He said, there's a difference. And he says, because what would happen if you did that? You would have to go out of the world. So then we can't accomplish the mission anymore. I mean, how do you share the gospel with sinners if you assume that the instruction of Paul is don't ever keep company with anybody who does these things? By the way, don't forget that also in different places when Paul gives lists like this, he reminds us you guys are the same way. You guys, if you weren't forgiven, but by the grace of God, you're the same, the same way. Verse 11, but now... I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. So he says you've got the people who are part of the world and you've got people who we identify as a brother or we would say inside the church. So he says, Now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immortal, immoral or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunker or extortioner or not even to eat with such a person. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Now, here, we're learning something really important. And not just, I mean, it's hard to leave behind the issue of discipline and church discipline in this passage. But let's try to step back from that issue for a minute and just deal with this issue. That he's saying that there are some who are outside the church and there are some who are inside the church. And when we practice discipline or we're maintaining the purity of the church, we're only dealing with one of those groups of people. And who are we dealing with? Inside. The people who are inside the church. So then you have to ask your question. The question is, how can anybody be put out of the church unless they were first received into the church. Does that make sense? Like, and not just in an informal kind of way. Like, not just in an informal, like, 
they're kind of Christians, and, or they are Christians, and they're just sort of kind of around. And how do you deal with a person like that? You have to have some way of knowing who's in the church and who's out of the church. And then the fourth word is accountable. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, where the writer of the book of Hebrews sort of closing the book of Hebrews down, just giving them these parting instructions. And he says this. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. So... He's giving instruction to the people who are inside the church. Obey and submit to church leaders. Not necessarily the most popular notion or idea today. Obey and submit to your leaders. And then he says, For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account... So for the members, they're to obey and submit to the church leaders. And for the leaders, they're responsible for the membership. And they're going to be people, me, I have to give an account for your souls when I'm judged. I'm responsible for the people that I have spiritual authority over. And that's part of being a pastor. That's why we're told in the scriptures that, um, that you shouldn't necessarily desire the work because you're going to be judged to a higher standard. You're going to have to deal with being judged according to how you've shepherded the people who are put underneath of you. Let, let, let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be no, no advantage to you. So two important truths there that, again, I think really get really practical on this issue for all of us. Two important truths. One is that Christians are called to submit to their leaders. Now let's just deal with that for a minute. Who are your leaders? I mean, just think about that for a moment. Like, as a Christian, what does this verse mean specifically for you? I mean, you can talk back right now if you want, but who are the people that scripturally, biblically, that the Bible says you should submit to? That's that's true in the context of your marriage. But in the context of the church, in the context of the church. Well, wait a minute. Deacons aren't aren't the same as pastors. They don't hold any spiritual authority over you. We we get that clear. We'll walk through that. They are, they are, the, the word literally means servant. They literally are meant to, to carry on the servant ministry of the church. And in Baptist churches, that... Has, they have become boards and bodies of governing leaders in the church. And there's no biblical reason for that to be. So scripturally, you do not submit to your deacons. Not, I'm not telling you to say, forget you, Terry. That's not, or Don. Or, but scripturally, they don't hold authority over you. Who, who are you called to submit to in the church? Your pastors or elders, same, same thing. Elders and pastors is interchangeable in the New Testament. Well, who are your elders or who are your pastors? Like, ask yourself this question. This is really practical, right? Like, which pastor do you submit to? What would you say? No, not all of them. 
I mean, just wait a minute. Let me give you an example. How many of you have ever heard of... All right, well, just follow me for a moment. Just follow me for a moment. Do you, do you need to submit to the pastor of the Lutheran church? Okay, all in this church. Okay. All right. All right. Then yes. Yes, your pastor's in your church. Like, I mean, think about that just on a, a practical level, right? Like, uh, you think of the example of somebody like Fred Phelps. You guys know who Fred Phelps is? Yeah. You know who his church is. You know who Westboro Baptist Church is? Yeah. We're getting a little closer. You know those idiots on CNN and Fox News who show up at funerals? Funerals of soldiers who are holding signs that say God hates this and that and, and thank God for dead soldiers. and all. That's Fred Phelps in Westboro Baptist Church. Do you submit to Fred Phelps? Why don't you submit to him? He's not your pastor. Right. Well, how do you know that? Right. Because you're not a member of his church. Because you haven't covenanted in that church and placed yourself under the authority of that particular pastor. And this is really like a, a practical thing. Like, the pastor up the street have authority over you? Does the pastor up the street here have authority over you? Or do I have authority over you? Well, I, I mean, do. I do. Sure, 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 but I completely agree with that, but for the sake of this discussion, let's just take verse 17 and ask, who has authority over you? I do as your pastor. Now, I'm not lording that over you. I'm just trying to get to the, what the biblical sense of this whole thing is. Now, flip that over for me, because I'm now accountable for the people that I have authority over. Like, I'm going to have to give an account in the judgment for your souls. That's a terrifying thing to think about as a pastor. Like, I have responsibility to lead you well in a way that that I can give a good account for you in the judgment. I'm going to be held accountable for you. But think about this for a minute. This has real practical implications. Like, for me, and I think about these things, like, who am I accountable for? I'm accountable for the people who have come into a covenant relationship with the church that I've been called to lead. Not every single person who crosses through the doors of this church, not the person who says, that's my church, but doesn't come to the church, not the people who show up at the block party, not the people who show up at special events or Christmas and Easter. I'm responsible, ultimately, for those people who are my people, who I've come into a covenant relationship with, you've called me to be your pastor, we've come into sort of almost like a something of a marriage where we're now in a relationship with one another, and you're called in the same way that a wife is called to submit to the leadership of the husband, and then I'm called to give account and lead you well. But that has real practical application for how we understand the church. Because I can't understand my role as... Like, I don't want to be accountable for everybody in Glenwood. And I mean that. Like, really. Like, I can't be accountable for just every person who sort of wants to identify. Like, when I was... Or when I was in Nanjimoy is a better example. Because when we were in Nanjimoy, 
I was sort of like the pastor of that kind of community, and people would just identify me as the pastor. They might call on me, and they might ask me to come do things for them or come visit me or come ask me questions, but am I accountable for those people? And so this whole idea of submitting and then giving account, and, and there are other practical things in the New Testament also, issues of accountability to one another, um, pulling each other up out of sin, you know, sharing each other's burdens, all of those things. But when we get down to brass tacks, I mean, what are we talking about in the end? Why would I say to you, I think that you should become a member of the church? Well, there's lots of issues, all those words, but these two issues are, are big issues for discipline, spiritual accountability in your own life, and then also because you're called, according to that verse, to be in a relationship where you're accountable and then I'm accountable. You're accountable to me and then I'm accountable to the Lord for you. And so we can see it all over the New Testament. Like I always, member or not, as Christians, we, we're going to love one another, serve one another, do things for one another, care for one another. I mean, that's not a... I, I wouldn't, nobody's ever going to call me and say, Pastor... I've got something or something in my life happened and can you come? I'm never going to say, well, let me check the directory real quick. <laughs> like that's, that's not what we're talking about here. I mean, but there is a time and a place for us to begin to identify with the fact that this is a serious relationship that we're called into and we're meant to be in, in a relationship with one another that way.